Good morning. Thankful to continue our study in 1 John. If you could please turn there to 1 John chapter 4. First John chapter 4. We finished chapter 3 last time, and for that we are thankful. And for anybody who studied the epistle of 1 John, uh, even theologians who've attempted to outline it, um, it is known that it is a hard one to do because John tends to repeat themes and further unpack things he's already talked about. And so today's sermon is going to unpack some things we've already seen in chapters 2 and in chapters 3. But nonetheless, it is going to be profitable for us, I believe. So before we start, let us open and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you, Lord, for the, um, the word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Lord, we thank you that you have not just given us your word, but you've given us your spirit that by him we may rightly understand the things that you have revealed for your glory and our good and the case of today's sermon, our protection. We ask that you would help us now, Lord, that we may be useful in your hands for the building of your kingdom. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the topic of today's sermon is dealing with spiritual warfare. Scripture we're going to look at today is 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. The general objective for us today is to understand how to judge righteously. We've talked about that in previous sermons in 1 John. The specific objective is to understand how God has equipped us for that and for battle. Because all Christians are actively engaged in spiritual warfare, the Church of Christ must, must not only be expecting spiritual conflict, but must also be a student of it. And the Holy Spirit is our teacher this morning, through the Apostle John. One exegete broke up this section of 1 John into four headings, and I agree. We're going to look at heading number one, a warning, if you're keeping notes. Heading number two, a test. Heading number three is a contrast, and heading number four, a recognition. More specifically, heading number one, which is a warning, is that discrimination is not only good, but is necessary. And that a test, we discriminate based upon an unwavering standard. And then the contrast, thirdly, that we judge inwardly, not outwardly. And fourthly, this recognition is that we have confidence to do these things through the Word of God. So now that you have your finger on the first verse of chapter 4 in 1 John, read with me. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, of which you have heard that, is, that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. 
You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore they speak as from the world. And the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. And by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Thanks be to God. For those of you who were able to attend the Scarb Sea Quarterly Fellowship last Lord's Day, I trust you remember the preached word from the exhortation at the end of the book of Hebrews. For those who couldn't make it, Pastor Antonio from Reformation Bible Church in Bakersfield reminded, reminded us all of the marathon of the Christian race. He entitled his sermon, Love for the Brethren. And as we warmly sat inside, or for some of us outside, we heard about our need to persevere in this long race known as the Christian life and the part that we all play in it. Indeed, the obligation that we all have towards each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, united to one Lord through one faith by one baptism. Yes, a marathon pictures the Christian life well. But there is another analogy used by Scripture that pictures the Christian life, and that is one of a fight, of a battle, of a war. Whether it's the Apostle Paul encouraging Timothy, his spiritual son, to fight the good, fi fight, the good fight of faith in 1 Timothy 6.12, or his exhortation for Timothy to suffer hardships with him as a good soldier of Christ in 2 Timothy 2.3, or providentially, as we heard this morning from the book of Philemon, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, one thing is clear. The Christian life is full of enemy combatants, known intimately by each of us who have been called out of darkness into God's marvelous light. We know that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, Matthew 16. We even know that we are to clad ourselves in the armor of our warrior king, Ephesians 6. But what is the nature of this battle? How will we know if we are in danger? What does this battle look like? Indeed, I believe Christ Jesus himself will equip us to answer those very questions this morning. The Apostle John, like an experienced general who has seen the enemy, been to war, and has returned home, is now supplying the troops with highly priced intel taught to us by the very breath of God contained in the scriptures. So with that in mind, let us look at our first heading, a warning. A disc that discrimination is not only good, but is necessary in the church. John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. John starts out with the Greek word agapetoi, which means beloved. He said this over and over through this epistle. He continues in this familiar pastoral tone 
when he says, Beloved, agape toi. Remember in his previous comment, he addressed the congregation as Adelphos, brothers. That was in 1 John 3.14. We notice that he did so to display his corporate solidarity with them in their sufferings by the hatred of the world. But now he remains in his pastoral tone, which he began in 1 John 3.18, as he continues to warn and to teach his beloved ones within the church. And he affectionately desires their protection from those who are, as he says, of the world and seek to do them spiritual harm. The apostles' motivation and warning is made plain. We have witnessed warnings from the Apostle John throughout this letter, but I believe that he makes one controlling statement that reveals one of his primary motivations for writing the letter and highlights the occasion for his writing. If you remember from 1 John 2.26, the Apostle John says this, These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. Brothers and sisters, there are those who are trying to deceive you. This reveals the context and occasion of this apostolic letter in general, but more specifically of this present warning when he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Let us stand at attention and consider the elements of this warning together. First, do not believe. He says, do not believe. This is a verb that is in the present active imperative mood. This tells us that there were some who did believe. And John is telling them to stop. To stop. There are those in the Christian congregation who are being led astray by false doctrine. It's presently happening then, and it's presently happening now. And this is John's plea to them. Do not believe. But then he goes on to say, do not believe every spirit. Now in one sense, I believe that when he says, do not believe every spirit, he's speaking of a teaching. In fact, John opened up his epistle in verse 5 of chapter 1 when he says, This is the message that we have heard from him and announced to you. You see, the apostle John is giving a message. He's giving a teaching. And we've been discussing how it's a corrective teaching. Because in the first century, in John's day, there were many who were distorting the true gospel, distorting the true nature of the true Christ, and distorting the true Christian ethic. And so John begins by saying, I have a message for you. Not only do I have a message for you, but I have a message that I have heard from him for you. And not only do I have a message that I have heard from him for you, but he has commissioned me as an apostle to be the authoritative teacher of these things. Remember, John is writing these things to correct those who are trying to deceive Christians. And so in one sense, I believe John is saying, don't believe every teaching, but test it. 
But I believe there's another layer here. And this would be no surprise to us who've looked into the issue of spiritual warfare. There are real spiritual forces in this world. This is the biblical cosmology, and this is what makes sense of our Christian life and the world that surrounds us. Remember, the Apostle Paul says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness. And here it is, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. It is easy when you have a materialistic worldview to think that our problem is just with wicked human beings. But the Apostle Paul reminds us, and I believe John is warning us this day, to not believe every spirit, which includes teaching and these spiritual wicked forces in heavenly places. In fact, John is going to go on to say that this is the spirit of Antichrist. So with that as a foundation, he goes on to say, For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, we know something of false prophets, especially as we consider the office of a prophet from our Old Testament. It is true that there were tests in the Old Testament to test a prophet, to see whether a prophet was from God or not. Listen to Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 3. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, already we're in a supernatural worldview. This is not a materialistic universe. We have prophets that are able to give signs and wonders. But the warning goes on. And the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Think about this. There are many today who say seeing is believing. But here we have a test for a prophet in the Old Testament where seeing is not believing because it's the, it's the content of their message. That's the first layer of this spirit of Antichrist. They may do wondrous things, work miracles in front of your eyes, but if they lead you after other gods, they are to be rejected. They are to be rejected. And I think John is speaking of this very same thing, but not as, not as it concerns the understanding of Yahweh from the Old Testament alone, but now as it understands Jesus in light of unfolding revelation. This has to do with our understanding of who Jesus is. I was talking to a co-worker who is not a believer, and yet because of common grace, kind, he understands the wickedness to a degree that surrounds us. He's even willing to talk about demons and talk about spiritual forces. And I reminded him 
The most important question that you're going to have to answer, friend, is the most important question that all of us are going to have to answer, every image bearer of God. And that question is, who is Jesus? Who is he? And the answer you give to that question determines your eternity. And John is giving his beloved congregation this warning to not believe every spirit. Do not believe every data point you hear about Jesus. Because there are many false prophets who have gone out into the world. We'll unpack this further, but Jesus told us the same thing in Matthew 7, 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Remember, seeing is not believing. They come in sheep's clothing. Or in Mark 13, 22, 23, for false Christs and false prophets will arise, said our Lord, and will show signs and wonders. There it is again, the supernatural worldview. Why? Why are they doing these signs and wonders? In order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed, Jesus says, behold, I have told you everything. In advance what a gracious God that we serve that has given us his word as a lamp to our feet in these ever important matters but here's where we can zoom in and kind of remember what John has taught us previously when he says for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, John has used this language previously of going out. Do you remember where it was in 1 John? Where does that sound familiar? They went out from us to show that they are not truly of us. And we camped out there, and we talked about how that relates not only to the many antichrists who had already come, but that singular Antichrist who had not yet come. And we identified it according to our confession and scripture, which is why our confession confesses it, that this singular Antichrist was and is the Pope of Rome. Why? Because the singular Antichrist that was to arise was to arise in the church and take his seat in the church. This isn't to hash over old ground, but to make the connection that these sheep, should say wolves in sheep clothing, are in the church. Antichrist would arise in the church. And we're so often to think of false teachers as being those who start and practice outside the church. But this is not the case. They went out from us to show they were not really of us. For if they had been us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are not all of us. John says many false prophets have gone out into the world. 
Remember Paul in the book of Acts, chapter 20, when he prophesied to the Ephesian elders, and from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Remember we identified Judas as a type of the Antichrist, one of the twelve. He had a part with the apostles and was counted among them, and yet he was an imposter, a wolf in sheep's clothing. If we make this connection that the scriptures are speaking of this danger that lurks inside the community of the, of the faithful, we are better equipped to understand John's warning when he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Two quick case studies from the book of Acts, which I think display this very reality. We recalled about someone named Simon Magus from the book of Acts, chapter 8. Remember? There were those who had been scattered. They went abroad preaching the word of God. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. Now here are supernatural acts being performed by a true man of God, a true sheep. But it says, For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice. And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. There is a spiritual affliction, a demonic Oppression, infestation, possession of many. And at the preaching of the word of God, these unclean spirits were coming out, shouting with a loud voice. Again, these are passages that we often have in the background, but we don't think about them in the cosmology of our current world today. We may think that demonic possession is something for the ancient world. Or even worse, that maybe they were just looking at some physical material understanding of schizophrenia or some kind of psychological um, uh, trial that we, with our better understanding, uh, can identify as some clinical condition, not really a spiritual oppression or a demon, no, I think this is also wrapped up in John when he says, do not believe every spirit. I believe that these spirits are not just oppressive spirits. I don't believe scripture just teaches that they bring physical harm alone, but that they bring spiritual harm. And the way they bring spiritual harm is through doctrinal harm. Paul warned Timothy of this very thing. But the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. By means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own consciences as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods. Are there any religious organizations that you've ever heard of that forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods once a year? 
I'll let you figure that one out. But the point is, is that it relates to what we're talking about. It was prophesied by Paul in the New Testament. And we are that much poorer if we don't have this cosmology, this biblical worldview as it concerns the world that is around us. And lastly, in the book of Acts, there was a slave girl. Do you remember her? It happened that as they were going from place to place in prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out saying, these men are slaves of the Most High who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Interesting. What would you say? What would you say to that message? You'd say, amen, sister. She continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. Do you see how deceiving demonic spirits are? Do you see why John would say, brothers, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. How many of us who have been in this Christian walk know of those that we love that have been tangled up, who have been deceived by doctrines that are demonic? I'm not talking about disagreeing on what may be negotiable doctrines. And what I mean by that is that they don't separate you from the household of God. They don't separate you from the one true and living God. I'm talking about these doctrines that so concern salvation, that so center on the person and the work of Christ, that they're not negotiable. We have to discriminate on this doctrine, the person and the work of Christ. And that's where John goes to next. Look at verse 2. This is the test. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, of which you have heard is coming, and now it is already in the world. Here is a test that the Apostle John gives us by which he says we may know. We may know the spirit of God as opposed to the spirit of Antichrist. And what does it have to do with? It has to do with a confession. Who is Jesus? Notice it's not just a simple confession of Jesus, but rather includes specific truths about him. If you recall, the setting in the first century was that of proto-Gnosticism 
that the flesh is evil and the spirit is good, that baseless living is not of any consequence because it's what is spiritual that matters. Again, remember, the false teachers are twisting who the true Jesus is, twisting what the true ethic is because of their abhorrent Christology. The docetics believed that Jesus was a man and the Christ spirit came down upon him at his baptism. And then when Jesus was on the cross and he cried the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the moment that the Christ spirit left Jesus. Meanwhile, you have Jews in the congregation who believe that Jesus was a prophet, but he wasn't the long-awaited Messiah. He wasn't the one that Moses spoke about, a prophet unto him that would indeed do greater things than Moses. And John is saying the same thing. You can't have a a Jesus like that. You can't have a bare confession. Rather, what I think he's echoing is Peter's confession. When Jesus asked Remember that one important question. Who do people say that I am? And some say, some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. But he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter stood up speaking for the 12 and says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. This was Peter's confession in Matthew 16, 16. And what did Jesus say? Amongst other things, He's saying, upon this rock, I will build my church. What is the rock? In one sense, it's the confession of Peter. And John is saying, this is a way that you can test to see if someone is from God, to see if the spirit that is within them, the doctrine that they're teaching is from God. Do they confess that? Again, in the context of the first century, those two groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, had stumbling blocks. Paul tells us, we preach Christ crucified. We preach the Messiah of Israel, the long-awaited son of David, as crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block. That was not in the game plan according to the Jews reading their Old Testament through a particular set of lenses. Ignoring all the verses about the suffering servant. It was a stumbling block that the Messiah would be crucified. And to Greeks, to Gentiles, that Jesus was the son of the living God, that he was God in the flesh. Foolishness. Foolishness. Brothers and sisters, those truths about our Lord and our Savior are still a stumbling block to Jews and is still foolishness to Gentiles. Why? It was and is still foolishness to the Gentiles because, as Paul says to the Corinthians, in this case, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving 
so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And why for the Jews? As Paul taught the same Corinthian congregation, there is still a veil over their eyes, over their heart. 2 Corinthians 3.15 But Christ is the one who takes the veil away from the unbelieving Jew. And Christ is the one who takes what a Gentile thought was foolishness and transforms it into wisdom. And I believe that when John says that this Jesus, the Messiah, has come in the flesh, he's also saying that this Jesus Christ who has come is still in the flesh. We're not talking about a Jesus who ceased to be human at the crucifixion, like the Docetics believe that the spirit of Christ left him, or that he was raised into a spiritual body that you could not touch, could not feel, could not eat. We know from the Gospels he did these very things. But rather when John uses the verb has come. It's in the perfect tense to indicate that not only has Jesus come in the flesh, but remains so even in heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ is the same forever, the God-man, and he will come back that same way, bodily, physically, in power. Brothers and sisters, for us today, the unwavering standard by which we judge all things is the unwavering, unchanging standard of the Word of God. This is what I believe John is getting at when he says, test them. Test these spirits. Test the message to see if they are from God. This is the unwavering standard that we have contained in the Old and the New Testaments. Received and preserved in apostolic doctrine alone. But even before the apostolic doctrine was preserved, Scripture alone still controlled that which all must be conformed to. It was still the God-given test that all truth claims had to conform to. Think of this, brothers and sisters, as the early church is developing, there isn't a completed New Testament canon. The scriptures are the Old Testament and the apostolic doctrine that is being preached and recorded and sent around to the churches. We know this verse well. Acts 17, 10 through 11. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were true. How many among us think that when we, are, think when we read this passage that the Bereans had a completed Bible and they're searching the scriptures to see if the doctrines that are being taught, even by the apostles, are true? Time out. How many of us think that they had just the Old Testament and they're leafing through the pages of their scriptures trying to find out if these things are true? Time out. 
most people didn't have written scriptures. Have you ever thought about that? That in this passage, when it says that the Bereans did these things, and we say, yes, that's what we are to do. Search the pages of scripture. That's what they did. No, that's not what they did. They gathered as a community. They gathered as a body of believers. And they listened to preaching and teaching the very thing that we're doing this morning. There were scrolls, but not everybody had them. We're doing the same thing today that they were doing all those centuries ago. And these infallible truths that the Apostle John says are a test concerning the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, now we do have contained in the Holy Scriptures and in them alone. Do not be fooled by doctrines that are persuasive and yet fall short of what the Bible reveals. We must not have our consciences bound to anything not contained in the Scriptures, nor believe or teach those things which are not apostolic in their origin. And we are to be controlled by the apostolic doctrine. In written tradition. Not through an alleged oral tradition found outside the pages of Scripture, but in the Scriptures alone do we have the apostolic tradition. And for those of us who have grappled with Roman Catholicism, we understand that they would contest that. That there is an apostolic tradition outside of the pages of Scripture. And that the church gives it to you. Brothers and sisters, I contend that that is where the doctrines of demons reside. So often. That's where the doctrines of demons reside in cults. Like Mormonism. That is the the place where the, doc, the demonic doctrines reside in cults like Jehovah's Witnesses. Have you ever noticed so often that cults have other texts that they bring alongside the scriptures and say they're as equally authoritative as the scriptures, if not more authoritative than the scriptures? Because after all, the scripture has errors, but Joseph Smith's writings are perfect. John is warning us today because Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and Roman Catholics began speaking truth amongst true believers. It began in the church. Again, this connects with what we've seen in 1 John as it concerns Antichrist and the many Antichrists who have come. But there is a contrast and John says, you are from God, little children. This is the third heading. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We can go on about what the world was like before Christ in the sense that the world was imprisoned in darkness and that the Jews were to be a light to the nations. That the nations were under a demonic stronghold. That these same spiritual forces pervade the coastlands, pervade the land surrounding Israel. 
And when Jesus came in the flesh and destroyed them on the cross, afterwards he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. And therefore, go into all the world and spread the gospel. Satan was able to prevent the spread of the gospel before the coming of Christ. But after Christ came in the flesh, as Jesus taught us in Matthew 12, he bound the strong man. He bound Satan. And this is what I believe Revelation 20 is speaking of when it says that Satan is bound for a thousand years. He is bound, why? So that he would not deceive the nations any longer. Jesus not only defeated sin and death, brothers and sisters, but he defeated these cosmic enemies and foes that we have on the cross, making a shame of them, an open display. And now we have confidence as we go preach the gospel. We have overcome them. The many antichrists who are trying to deceive the church. And now we have overcome the antichrist who set himself up in the church, deceiving millions, even to this very day. But what is greater, we have overcome the evil one, the devil himself. John has said this in 1 John 2, 13 and 14 previously. And he says it again now. We've overcome them, brothers and sisters. In this life, even though we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us, the battle doesn't stop. The war always seems to be raging in this life. You may be closer to the front line at certain seasons of your life, but one thing remains true. The battle rages on. The battle with your flesh? Oh, the depths of the depravity of our flesh. The battle with the world? Who of us can rightly tell of the contrast between us and them? That's what John is giving us in this verse. The battle with the devil and his minions, demons, and their doctrines. In this time, before the second coming of our Lord and our Savior on the clouds, Satan will not stop. We have no peace with him, but we do have peace with God. And greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, along with all his cohorts and demonic minions. Think of this. The unbeliever who hate God and are estranged from his promises, life, covenant community, those who are on the outside of the walls where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, those who in their brief life on earth shunned the mercy of God, rejected his path of salvation, were unthankful for the many gifts they received from his hand, took for granted his patience as the ark of salvation, which is Christ, was being filled like in the days of Noah. These will be swept away like a flood, blown away like chaff when the wheat is being beaten out on the threshing floor. will be gathered up like weeds to be burned in the eternal fire where sin never ceases and the worm never dies. But here is comfort for us who hope in him. The battle will stop. The war is scheduled to end. The victory is ours already. With King Jesus at the helm, the battle will stop even at an unsuspecting time. 
And here is encouragement mixed with comfort. Our great king has determined that we precede him in victory through the power that he works in us. Paul says in Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you, Paul says. Is the grace of our Lord Jesus with you? Spiritual battles don't just concern doctrine, they concern thoughts. They concern stumbling blocks. Who among us is wise enough to know if our thoughts are even our own all the time? The struggle it is to pray, the struggle it is to do the things that we want to do and yet do not do them. It may have been a struggle even to come here this morning. But one thing is true, that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Because it's not about our works, but the works of our warrior king who has gone before us. And when Paul or when John says that we are from God and he who knows God listens to us, he who is not from God does not listen to us. And by this we know the spirit of truth and error. We can have confidence in our evangelism. We can have confidence in those among us whom we love, who are seeking after doctrines of demons, and say, I know with confidence that he who knows God listens to the apostolic doctrine. By the way, that's the us in verse 6. We talked about this apostolic we we are from God. Paul is saying the we is the apostles. And he who knows God listens to us, listens to the scriptures. Not being a pseudo-apostle, those who have crept into the church unawares who are wolves in sheep's clothing. Because any rejection of the apostolic doctrine is evidence that they do not know God. But he who knows God listens to us. John says, and he who is not from God does not listen to us. This is the contrast, but this is the recognition and the hope that we can have in sharing the truth of who Jesus Christ is with those who do not know him, those who claim they will never know him, and those who claim they know him but actually do not. In conclusion, I want to end with three bullet points. Every time we come to a scripture, we should be asking ourselves how the scripture relates to these three categories. Faith, hope, and love. What do we learn about faith in this passage from the Apostle John? Number one, that these false teachers are warned about by God and that they begin in the church. If you're able, in closing, Look at Jude. Jude, verses 12 through 13. Actually, I'm going to start in verse 8, just to lead us into verse 12. Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. I believe in part what Jude is saying is the authority that these men, these false teachers who have gone out of the church, this authority they're rejecting is the apostolic authority. 
And then go down to verse 12. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars from whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. We hear those words and tremble, but what I want to remind you is, Jude is even saying, these are men in the church. These are hidden reefs in our love feasts. The love feast was often where they would share the Lord's Supper. John says, test the spirits to see if they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And what's the love? What's the love aspect? Remember 1 John 4, 1. For those who do believe these false teachers. Remember, John says, do not believe. We identified that there were those because of the word casing and tensing that John uses that did believe. And John is pleading with them. Don't believe them. But brothers and sisters, for us, among us, who do know those who have believed these doctrines, it's out of love that we should contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints, to quote Jude again, for their benefit, for their good, for their salvation. And we should pray for them. Oh, how my heart breaks for those that I know who I once walked to the house of the Lord with, sang psalms and hymns with, shared the Lord's Supper with, had Bible studies with, and, got, and went after other gods. Even if they believe it's still the one true God of the Scriptures, if it's not the apostolic doctrine and what God confesses who his son is, it is the doctrine of demons. Your heart should break for those whom you love who are going after these doctrines. And what's the hope? What's the hope? We've said it before. One day, brothers and sisters, this battle will end. One day, this war will stop. This has been a training manual for spiritual warfare. Much we could say about spiritual warfare, but one thing we've heard is a test. A test to identify who the true Christ is. And in closing, I want you to turn to Isaiah if you're able. Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah prophesied the hope that we have that this war will come to an end, that this battle will cease, and we will live forever in a new creation that is already broken in, by the way, where there will be no more sin, pain, death, deception, false doctrine, demons, spiritual warfare. He says this, now it will come about, verse 2, chapter 2, now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it and many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word from the house the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. 
and he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Brothers and sisters, no more war, physical or spiritual. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again, never again will they learn war. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for the light of your word. Lord, we pray that you would work in us this faith, hope, and love as it concerns this section of 1 John. That we would recognize, Lord, that there is true doctrine and false doctrine. True doctrine comes from you. False doctrine comes from demons. Spiritual forces who you have overcome through and by your Son on the cross, and yet still torment us today. Grant in us a greater, a greater measure of love for those who believe these doctrines, who are led astray to follow other gods, even a false Christ whom they believe is the God of the Scriptures, yet in their ignorance are being led astray. Use us, Lord, to pray for such. Use us, Lord, to be the instruments by which they will be corrected. We know, according to your word, that it is very difficult, if not impossible, to bring such men back, such women back from such abhorrent doctrine. But, Lord, the things that are unable with us or the things that are impossible with us are possible with you. And, Lord, grant in us an even greater measure of hope, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one at the helm who will come back on the clouds in glory with all his angels and plowshare and sword. Sword will be beaten into plowshare into a pruning hook. For in that day, we will learn war no more. Oh, how we long for that day to come. We ask that you send your son, Jesus. We hasten that day so that your will will be done on earth perfectly as it is in heaven. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.